Welcome to Lost in Thought, a podcast which explores ideas and questions in philosophy, culture, and mental health. This is your host, Alex Hamo. In this episode, I speak with Emil P. Torres, a philosopher and historian with a background in neuroscience. Emil's work focuses on existential threats to civilization and humanity. They have published on a wide range of topics, including machine superintelligence, emerging technologies, as well as the history and ethics of human extinction. Emil has a book which is about to be published and has the title Human Extinction, A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. While it may seem like the topics that Emil and I speak about are very intense and deadly, our conversation, on the other hand, was nothing like that. It was extremely lighthearted, very funny, and Emil has incredible access to all kinds of information, and I'm sure you'll learn very much from this interview. Fantastic. So, Emil P. Torres, hello, how are you? Good, thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to chat with you. Yeah, and, and I feel the same way. So, you're, you're working in philosophy. Uh, you're, doing, you're currently doing a PhD in Hanover in Germany. Um, and I'm interested in knowing how you ended up in philosophy. Uh, so, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think it. I think people who knew me long ago in when I was a, a kid, middle school, high school, wouldn't be surprised that I ended up in philosophy, because I I was just sort of naturally curious about some of the you know certain fundamental questions about you know famously Leibniz you know asked why is there something rather than nothing, uh, and so yeah I, I was. Um, attracted to these kind of big picture questions uh, about the nature of, you know, life, uh, the universe and everything, as Douglas Adams put it. Uh, and yeah, and also was was uh, raised in quite a religious household. And um, I think you, some of the discussions surrounding religion also uh, encouraged a sort of philosophical curiosity about the world. Um and yeah, and so when I, you know, graduated from high school, which was a, a rough time, I actually, I actually, almost didn't graduate, almost didn't pass high school. Um, but once I was out, I, um, I, you know, I, I was, I was so, I had such an insatiable uh, appetite for philosophy that I, I literally spent years at the public library all day. It was like fourteen hours just, just reading, Whoa. and. So yeah, I, I think it, people who knew me back then would be more surprised. Uh, I suspect to find out that if, if to find out that I didn't go into philosophy, if that were the case, then that I ended up in in philosophy. Um, and yeah, so I also have a background in neuroscience. But in fact, the interest in neuroscience was spurred by by questions in philosophy of mind. You know, so you know, mid two thousands, I really got into uh, you know, uh, um, an idea called neurophilosophy that was, you know, described um, and defended by uh, Pat Churchland, who I believe is at uh, UC San Diego. And, you know, they had a particular, you know, radical view within philosophy of mind called eliminativism, which is that, you know, all of these mental states uh, are ultimately, uh, they are illusory. They don't exist. 
any more than phlogiston. That's a famous example from the history of, of science. Phlogiston doesn't ex exist. We thought it existed for a long time, and it sort of like helped us to predict uh, certain phenomena, but then further uh, scientific progress led us to realize that that was, was not the case. So they believe mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the case with beliefs and desires. So anyways, I'm rambling a bit. But, no, no, so no. I, I ended up going into neuroscience because of my interest in philosophy. And then once I was done that, I sort of looped back around to focusing on uh, more yeah, philosophical issues. Uh, or maybe, you know, just the that I, I sort of ended up at that intersection between philosophy and global catastrophic risk. Yes. <laughs> Questions mm. about the, for example, you know, the ethics of human extinction uh, has been something I've been interested in for quite a while. So yeah, that's so in, in brief, well, maybe this this is making a short story long, but you know that's my background with philosophy. One thing that one thing that is you know really incredible to learn about you is this uh, fourteen hour public library ritual that you had um, reading the you know reading philosophy for for incredible lengths of time, um, and I know that currently we are speaking at. 10 20 p.m your time which is pretty late um and i i don't think i've actually interviewed anyone this late so i'm wondering if you've yeah if you've been able to continue this like firstly how did you actually read for that long uh and secondly how like i don't know this that's a pretty incredible and i imagine very enviable practice um, and thing to be able to do, especially with something like philosophy, which requires so many hours staring at, you know, pages that eventually, you know, put you in some kind of trance. Um, so how did you, yeah, how did you go about reading so much? And have you continued to, you know, have you continued this level of commitment to the discipline? Because it really seems like you have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the key is if you, if you enjoy it, then it just really doesn't feel like like work. I mean, I I, I think play is, is a much better term for what I do all day. Um, I mean, it's it's just you know really enjoyable. So yeah, that enabled me to focus for long periods of time. Um, you know, still pretty much do that. I mean, I I get up at ten, start working. I stop at 12, 12 a.m. That's that's when I head back to to my apartment from the offices. Um, and yeah, but, but actually just incidentally, because you might find this of interest, my methodology has changed over time. So, you know, I used to, as noted, spend all this time reading. The problem is that I'm quite a slow reader. Uh, so, you know, back in the day when I was in my early twenties, for example, I forced myself to read all of Kant's critique of pure reason. I oh really didn't understand any of it, but I just told myself, just do it. <laughs> just, you'll get something out of it. <laughs> At least it'll sort of plant little little seeds. And then maybe later on, I'll reread it and it'll it'll start to make sense or I'll come across, you know, I'll explore other works by, by Kant. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it would have helped me to, to have read uh, this massive tome of his. But really in 2016, I discovered on my my iPhone, the text-to-speech function. And ever since then, I have read almost nothing. I listen to virtually everything 
you can multitask, so you can, you know, do, you know, wash the dishes or go for a run and, you know, and sort of fructify your time by, you know, listening to, to books and articles. And oftentimes, uh, you know, I'll do that at, at much faster than the normal speed, it's, you know, five, six, seven, eight times the, the normal speed. And I mean, that's like, like for example, the, um, the forthcoming book that I've been working on, I mean, it's, it's really a quite sprawling history of thinking about human extinction from the ancient Greeks or even before the ancient Egyptians, all the way up through, you know, the atomic age uh, up leading up to the present. And the only way I could possibly have written this is with the, the uh, text speech function, <laughs> you know, which is just because there's I, I just refuse to cite anything without having read it, like more or less in full. So even if there's everything that I mentioned in the book, I've, I've gone, looked at the original text, you know, if not like the you know surrounding secondary literature. Um, but yeah, the, this little function, these little apps have made, have made it possible. To, to do this. And so for young people who are looking for a way to, uh, yeah, to, 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 you know, to uh, uh, accumulate uh, more knowledge <laughs> you know, uh, throughout the semester, this is one, you know, possibility. And, and I don't think you need to be an auditory learner either, uh, because I'm certainly not. I mean, I find lectures to be very soporific. They, they put me to sleep. In fact, it's the rapidity of the speech that sort of draws your attention. If it weren't for that, for, for the high speed, my mind would would wander. And so anyways, it, that has been very useful. And, and I would uh, suggest that people maybe experiment with uh, this this methodology, which has worked very well for me. I think, I think that's a really good tip. I hope people try that out. Because um, yeah, many peers of mine have, including especially myself, have a hard time you know, staring at a screen and just being like, in this paper, I will argue that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been a real game changer for me. Mm. You know, yeah. I, I don't know what I would have done without uh, this te technology. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I really don't understand how people in the past wrote some of the texts that they, the, you know, some of the, these erudite books with all sorts of citations and, you know, it's, you know, them not having access to searchable text, for example, is, it, it just sort of blows my mind that they were able to write some of these, these books, because really, yeah, these, um, you know, uh, technologies that have only recently become available are so critical to my method for, uh, method of scholarship. Yeah, it's, it is incredible, these, these big books with, you know, I was reading, um, you mentioned uh, just before we uh, started recording, you mentioned Derek Parfit, um, who is a philosopher uh, whose name has come up, you know, pretty consistently over the course of my studies. But I'd never actually read, um, like, you know, his pr like pr primary text. I'd always read, you know, people being like, ah you know, following Parfit's blah, blah, blah. Um, and the other day, as I was trying to familiarize myself with population ethics, um, I started reading Reasons and Persons. Um, and, you know, it's a monolithic 
like I think multi-volume book um and yeah you know I don't understand I like I don't understand how it's possible to write something like that without being able to you know search for very specific quotes um because it, the memory and the note taking required to organize something like that would just be uh yeah you know truly yeah truly a nightmare um yeah okay so just, just to, to mention real fast um the so reasons and persons i believe is just one volume but he he published oh. on what matters later and i believe there were maybe three volumes of that in fact i if memory serves um he was working on a fourth mm. uh i'm pretty sure that that's the case but then he you know he unfortunately passed away i think in 2017 um but but yeah i mean reasons and persons is a is a tour de force i mean it's it's an extraordinary work you know unlike maybe a history book or, or certain other types of texts it didn't involve like a tremendous amount of uh citing you know or like quoting other people it's a lot of just original you know sort of thought experiments and so on. but even that in terms of note taking to organize one th one's thoughts is is just it's just amazing and yeah i don't know how to have people did it back in the day yeah. back in the day meaning like not that long ago yeah all. yeah really you know not this isn't hundreds of years ago this is you know a few decades ago um okay cool so you mentioned that your work uh you know you're you primarily are currently working on in a field um on your website you say that you're primarily concerned with eschatology. Is, is that how it's pronounced? Okay, eschatology, yeah. Um, now, like the Google definition of this term uh, gives it pretty clear religious connotations. However, my having read a bunch of your articles online, um, it seems like... Uh, at least recently, a lot of the work you've been doing on this topic, eschatology, isn't so much about its, uh, you know, religious history. Although earlier you said that you were you were raised in a religious family, which I find interesting. Um, but you've been looking at this term eschatology primarily through the lens of, um, you know, the end of the world, uh, as a consequence of you know, human error or, you know, technology or, you know, climate change or whatever it may be. Um, and so, yeah, I was wondering whether you could, whether uh, you could talk to me a bit about eschatology and, um, and the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, eschatology is, a so the word literally means, you know, the, the study of last things. And historically, it's been a branch of theology, you know, the, that namely that branch that's sort of, you know, it's it subdivides into personal eschatology and cosmic eschatology. Personal eschatology has to do with what happens to us as individuals uh, after we die. What happens to our soul? Does this does the soul go to sleep? You know, it's a theory called soul uh, uh, soul sleep, which Martin Luther you know accepted, but is, has otherwise been considered a heretical view. Uh, among many uh, theologians. Uh, and then, you know, 
and then you know at the end of time we're you know our soul is uh united or reunited with our resurrection body at which point you know, we enter the the kingdom of heaven forever cosmic es eschatology concerns these sort of bigger events that uh affect you know all or most people so this would be uh you know things of of general end time significance the the second coming the rapture <laughs> armageddon uh you know and so on so yeah historically it was a theological subfield and then you could make the case that uh with the decline of religion which ha in the west happened really in the 19th century um you know that's when you know, second half of the 19th century is like when nietzsche famously declared god is dead because we have killed him uh, you've got the rise of like you know these secular uh systems like marxism and as a result there was the eschatology, the eschatological narratives of Christianity were sort of secularized. And so you still had these stories that people told about the uh, future of humanity within some kind of linear narrative. We had a beginning, there's going to be an end which will usher in you know, a, a utopian world of some sort. So Marx is like a really good example of this. I mean, he proposed a secularized eschatology, uh, which in many ways sort of maps onto the Christian eschatology. You've got, you know, sin or original sin, which is, you know, capitalism. <laughs> You've got, you know, your sort of messianic figure, which is Marx, you know, who's who's declaring to the world that, you know, workers everywhere should unite. And, and many other, you know, uh, um, points of contact there. And then ultimately it'll usher in, you know, the, the revolution uh, at the end uh, will usher in this, you know, sort of utopian world of a, of a global communist state, uh, which he didn't say much about what exact, exactly it would look like. But I mean, it was something that would, you know, abolish sin, abolish capitalism, you know, and it's, it's a state that we all should look forward to <laughs> um, with great eagerness. And so anyways, yeah, and then it, it was in the 20th century, 1969, was the first time the word eschatology was used in uh, a scientific, specifically an astrophysical or, or cosmological context by Lord Martin Rees, mm. who's the astronomer ro royal uh, in the UK, uh, based at Cambridge. And so he used this uh, to, in, in discussing the future evolution of the universe. So, you know, we know that the universe is expanding. Will that continue forever? Or at some point, you know, will the the expansion uh, increase so that the universe just rips apart into a bunch of bunch of pieces? Or maybe gravitational pull will will result in the universe the expansion stopping at some point in the future and then reversing, and there will be this big crunch. And so that was the scenario that he discussed. That was the occasion for him to use the term eschatology for the first time in this you know specifically scientific uh, context. Uh, and that led in 1997 to a couple cosmologists coining the term physical eschatology mm. for the study of the scientific study of the future evolution of the cosmos. And today, as it happens, the, the most widely accepted view in physical eschatology is what I think a, a lot of people know about. It's the heat death. You know, so the, the universe is, is flat and it will continue to expand uh, forever and at some point, you know, which the 
the entire universe will just sink into a frozen state of eternal lifelessness, which is thermodynamic equilibrium. And so anyway, so th this is a sort of uh, a sense of the different ways that eschatology could be used. There's sort of a religious sense, uh, which goes, you know, in the, the Western tradition goes back you know, millennia, um, or arguably the particular linear narrative uh, that is unique to like the Abrahamic faiths could be traced all the way back to Zoroastrianism, um, which, you know, was that idea was then probably passed to the Jewish people during the Babylonian exile and then mm. incorporated into their system of beliefs. So you've got that religious sense, then you've got a secular sense, which really emerged in like the 19th century. Good example being uh, Marxist th theory of history. And then you have this more scientific sense uh, that emerged in the, the second half of the 20th century. And I think then even more recently, the scientific sense has expanded beyond just the domain of cosmology. So, you know, people are trying to, to maybe a really good example would be existential risk studies. You know, one half of existential risk studies is dedicated to scientific questions about how could human extinction or some kind of global catastrophe of that sort actually come about? What are the physical kill mechanisms? Maybe it's, you know, it could be an asteroid impact, something nobody really took seriously before 1980s, 1990s, to, to be honest. It's surprising to us people, but that was thought to be impossible. But then, uh, yeah, beginning in the 1980s, uh, uh, people realized, oh, yeah, asteroids could actually potentially destroy humanity. So that's a scientific uh, eschatological discovery. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, speculation surrounding emerging technologies. You know, may maybe it's possible that in the future we, um, you know, build little nanobots. So, you know, billionth of a meter scale uh, machines that could self-replicate. And if you design this, the, these two uh, self-replicate in an uncontrolled manner and release them into the environment, they might convert all organic matter just to copies of themselves. And as a result, the entire biosphere would be completely destroyed. A process called ecophagy, you know, um, to, you know eating of the, the uh, ecosystem. So yeah, and my interests really cover, cover all of that. Uh, I think really going back to, to when I was a kid and there was a big emphasis on um, on the end of the world. Hmm. And there was, a, there was a kind of like prominent apocalyptic aspect to the version of Christianity that, uh, that I grew up immersed within. And yeah, and then it's, it's um, so that general interest has remained throughout the years. And it's just be, as I began to, you know, to, to, uh, uh, you know, push back against, get rid of my sort of religious commitments, apostatize. Um, the religious interest in eschatology was sort of replaced by uh, this more scientific uh, uh, approach. Yeah, wow, that's a that was an incredible summary of the history of this term. Um, and what, something I found really interesting in what you said was the uh, like the you know, the Marxist eschatological framework. I'd never thought about it as a theory um, of like, you know, end times or like, you know, a theory about, uh, <laughs> you know, how how our civilization could conclude. Um, yeah, which is like, th that. that's, yeah, that's actually something I'm going to have to think about. Um, 
the the parallels. So some of the parallels I, I didn't even mention. I mean, we we on the Marxist view, you know, we started off in something that's would be an analog to the Garden of Eden. You know, it was this this quote unquote primitive communist state. Mm. You know, and then there was sort of the fall, the introduction of sin. You know, again, the messianic figure who uh, arrives, and then you know, it's ultimately up to us to engage in this sort of final battle to usher in, uh, you know, the the paradisaical uh, future world of a, of a you know global communist state. So wow. yeah, it's, it's really the, the connections are really quite fascinating. I mean, there's also many connections with um, with uh, Nazism. I mean, it, that had its own eschatology as well. I mean, Hitler talked about the the um, uh, one thousand year uh, Reich. You know, which is which has its analog with the notion of the millennial kingdom uh, in the Bible. Mm. So yeah, lots of lots of fascinating connections where, yeah, the, the basic Christian framework was just modified in different ways. Uh, to, you know, to to make it suit, to make it fit. You know, uh, uh, other ideological um, systems. So a trend that I've noticed um, in the news and in kind of, uh, you know, popular literature that's being released um, is that, you know, framing things around this idea or this kind of claim that we are at the hinge of history um, at this point where, you know, we began in the Garden of Eden in this, you know, beautiful world, we trashed it, then some kind of messianic prophet-like figure emerges and, you know, we need to usher in, you know, the paradise in whatever form. But right now is the time, like this is crunch time. This is where we're given the opportunity, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to usher in the future. It seems like again and again, you know, this is something, this is a common thread between like big political movements, you know, Marxism, Nazism, um, but also something that I've seen uh, in, you know, many other pieces of popular writing, like Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. um, And uh, more recently, an article by Peter Singer, um, whose title I've forgotten it might be, you know, the hinge of history or something like this, um, uh, where he talks about, you know, the kind of consistent uh, reliance on this idea that, like, right now is crunch time um, and that this is just repeated again and again and again by whichever kind of prophet-like figure has emerged as the the leader of the movement. Um, and... You, I know that uh, Peter Singer in that article, The Hinge of History or whatever it was called, um, was speaking about something that uh, you know an incredible lot about as well, um, which is this recent, semi-recent political, oh, sorry, philosophical view called long-termism and I was wondering if you could induct listeners into long-termism what is it uh, where did it come from 
and then maybe after that we can get to um, your thoughts, some of your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you said political a moment ago and then corrected yourself, but <laughs> but that's not wrong. I mean, it, it's a political project. Obviously, there there is a philosophical foundation to it, but ultimately it's a project that aims, just like Marxism, to change the world and to you know alter the uh, future trajectory of of you know civilizational development. Um, <clears throat> sorry. And and in fact, the connections between uh, you know the apocalyptic elements of long termism are pretty striking. <laughs> you know, like you said, I mean, th there's this belief that we live at the hinge of history. You know, these are this is the the last hour. Uh, you know, in in religious terms, um, you know, we're approaching the eschaton. You know, the end the the end times. You know, moment where you know, our decisions or maybe even events that are outside our control will change the course of history in some really significant way uh, forever, so, you know, an inflection point, um, which is exactly what, you know, something like the second coming is. I mean, that's an inflection point. Um, for for long-termists, it's the arrival of artificial superintelligence. You know, that's going to just radically alter uh, the entire future. Um, so yeah, I mean the the, the long termist ideology is built on the idea that that um, you know hum humanity could exist for an extremely long time to come, and as a result, the future could be very big, especially if we colonize space. But even if we stay here on Earth, there's going to be an enormous number of people. In 1983, Carl Sagan, I believe he was the first one to ever provide. A calculation of how many future people there could be, and he said, "If we live for on Earth for another ten million years, which he thought was the average amount of uh, lifespan, he thought was the lifespan of the average uh, mammalian species, then there could be something like five hundred trillion uh, future people if the human population remains stable." I can't remember what the human population was at the time, but it was something like three billion, maybe. <laughs> um, it's significantly smaller than uh, what it is today. But anyways, so yeah, I mean, he calculated this huge number of people just on Earth. Uh, but in fact, you know, Earth could remain habitable for another 800 million or a billion years. So that's just an enormous number of future people. And then if we, you know, wander into, uh, into space, th that number could be increased by many orders of magnitude. If we, con if we convert planets into giant computers, and we run computer simulations, then uh, there could be a much, much greater still number of uh, digital people in the future. So the idea is that if you want to do the most good in the world, and since the future could be so big populated by trillions upon trillions of individuals, then maybe what you should do is focus less on the present and focus instead on how your actions might influence uh, these far future people, including whether or not they exist in the first place. Because on the long-termist view, and this is a very controversial claim, uh, the non-existence of somebody who could have uh, a good life, if they were to exist, that would be bad. The universe is better the more people there are uh, who have lives that aren't miserable. And so therefore, you know, if you derive a, an obligation from that, you would say we we must then go out and try to increase the human population or the future population uh, as much as possible. And so um, 
Yeah, so that's the basic idea behind long-termism. And because, you know, we're, we're they, they think that we're on the verge of creating artificial general intelligence, uh, and as a result, artificial superintelligence, and maybe we're on the cusp of colonizing space. You know, obviously there's all these uh, billionaires right now who are dumping huge amounts of money into trying to colonize Mars and so on. Uh, that we may be at this point where, um, at this transition point where uh, the future ends up looking very different than the, the present. And and our actions now could determine the likelihood of all of these trillions upon trillions of people uh, existing in the far future and living good lives. So therefore, you know, on this long-termist view, there's, there's an urgency to the moment. And um, yeah, but but in you know rough outline, that's the, that's the belief. I mean, there's sort of different strengths uh, um, of interpretation of the view. You know, in a weak interpretation, it just says you know one of our priorities is focusing on the the very far future, millions, billions, trillions of years from now. Uh, on the strong version, the claims that that is is the thing that we should be most worried about. Uh, and then there's a very strong version, which is just it's of overwhelming importance. Just nothing else matters, but ensuring that all these people come into ex to existence in the far future. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, right now, Will McCaskill has been out there promoting his book, which defends a sort of weaker version of long-termism. Although I think McCaskill himself is much more sympathetic with the, a stronger version uh, as are some of the other leading figures in the community, as far as I could tell. And yeah, so it, it, it's, uh, for some of us who are critics of this and worry that if the this ideology is taken seriously, it could be dangerous, uh, have as a result had an occasion to go out and do what we can to uh, publicly criticize it. So yeah, so I think that's how you you came across my work it is <laughs> you know, it is because i have been trying to sound the alarm that actually some of these ideas could be potentially dangerous uh if taken seriously by those who have the the levers of power within reach mm. yeah and um you mentioned that you know there are very powerful people endorsing this movement jeff bezos elon musk you know <laughs> like how much more how much more money could you ask for you know <laughs> i don't know if i don't i've not i've not actually seen um jeff bezos, bezos. yeah he but i mean his his uh you know he, he, his uh, actions are certainly consistent yeah he's with, he's wanting with, to go into space and this kind of stuff yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah but definitely elon musk i mean he's been explicit that you know uh long termism is quote a close match for my own philosophy yeah yeah i saw that tweet specifically i think he even shared will mccaskill's new book yeah um pretty incredible um yeah i guess this actually uh this is a question that's been on my mind for a while i'll i'll come back to long-termism in just a second but um so there have been various kind of uh philosophy movements over the years um which have you know come to prominence and then either waned or kind of stayed uh 
kind of in the in the public conscience and being very impactful. Now, um, one philosopher who comes to mind is a philosopher who uh, I've actually been fortunate enough to interview and also be taught by, who is Peter Singer. Um, and, you know, Peter Singer brought many things into the mainstream, notably animal welfare, um, you know, and uh, thinking about extending our, uh, I guess, care obligations to those who aren't just in our immediate surroundings and this kind of thing. Um, and one movement which emerged, uh, which seemed to be, you know, partly inspired by Peter Singer's thinking is effective altruism. Um, now, I know this has had pretty humongous traction, um, both in the philosophical community and outside. You know, it's kind of a lifestyle and it's, a, it's an attitude towards the world and it's a political view and, you know, it informs politics um, and so many different things. Um, and long-termism seems to be... Well, many of the people, the, the founders of the effective altruist movement, you know, these white men from uh, Oxford um, and Cambridge, you know, Toby Ord, um, these figures. Um, I think Toby is actually, funnily enough, from Melbourne. Um, but, you know, they, uh, they, have, they are now talking about this new view long-termism um and i don't know whether it's because the internet has grown a lot since the foundation of effective altruism but long i'm not sure if i've seen so much attention paid to a part of philosophy before um so much media attention like and I think this is something you've spoken about as well. You know, Will McCaskill's face is everywhere, like New Yorker, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, Elon Musk sharing it on Twitter. Like, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty wild. Um, and so, yeah, I was wondering if, if there have, it, to your knowledge, if there have been any, uh, I guess, like movements in philosophy which have received as much um, as much attention as long-termism? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess maybe it depends on how loosely one defines philosophy. I mean, there's sort of a, you know, a framework called neoliberalism, you know, that's been hugely influential. Um, there are also individual philosophers throughout history who have gained a certain uh, lionized status, you know, so been seen by as more or less celebrities uh, at the time. Edward von Hartmann uh, in Germany, uh, back in the, the second half of the 19th century, was, was very famous. A name that most people, including people in the continental tradition, because he was, you know, in the continent, uh, wouldn't recognize. <laughs> it's the people who sort of lost uh, to history. But at the time, we're you know, super famous. Henry Bergson was another one. Uh, I mean, it was almost like a Beatlemania type phenomenon ar mm -hmm. around him with a lot of like younger women 
who were very enamored with him and would show up, you know, at his uh, at his uh, talks in huge numbers. But so that that aside, in terms of just philosophical views, it's hard to think of another instance where a particular philosophical view has received this sort of attention. I mean, you mentioned Peter Singer, you know, animal rights has certainly had a, a huge impact on the world, which, you know, Peter Singer had played a really uh, integral role in popularizing uh, this idea. And yeah, I mean, in terms of EA, Peter Singer also, you know, his his global ethics, you know, early 1970s, uh, published an article on on famine and ethics and obligations of people in the in wealthy countries in the global north, uh, with respect to individuals who are in poor regions of the world and might be starving. Um, I think there was the crisis in Bangladesh. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, um, but I think there was there was that big crisis in Bangladesh at the time that he was responding to, um, and yeah, and so that idea ended up uh, influencing EA. EA you know, has gotten a fair amount of attention, but definitely not as much as as the recent push to popularize long-termism has given it and the long-termist uh, view. So it, it is really, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, I suspect that part of the reason is that unlike, um, unlike a lot of past ideas, you know, philosophical ideas, uh, or even you know broader sort of frameworks or worldviews, this particular one has placed a huge emphasis on on uh, you know fostering connections with wealthy people, encouraging people to uh, do something that they call earn to give, you know, to so go and to try to find uh, to to get a job that's lucrative in order to then make more money and give a sizable portion of that back to EA or to, you know, another charity um, such as the Antimalarial uh, Foundation, um, if I remember the name correctly. So as a result, the EA community has acquired an enormous amount of money. They have 46.1 billion in committed funding. And there have been oh millions. Yeah, it, it just a staggering quantity of money. And there have been, uh, there will be details about this at some point in an article. But I mean, there have been millions that have have been given to McCaskill just to promote his book. <laughs> you know, it's just an absolutely mind-boggling amount of money. So as a result, if if not of merit, if not because of merit, then because of money, the long-termist ideology has gained a certain degree of uh, publicity that very few philosophical positions have gained in the past. Uh, and so it, it is really pretty pretty unprecedented, at least in in my, uh, as far as, as I can tell just off the top of my head, not being able to recall past examples um, which might have set a precedent for this. So yeah, yeah it's it, it, it's set to, to, to you know, the, 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 there's a, a UN dispatch article recently that talked about how uh, the United Nations and foreign policy circles are adopting long-termism like never before. There's the upcoming 2023 uh, UN Summit for the Future, which McCaskill in an interview talks about 
excitedly because he thinks it might be a moment that um, long-termism really can be mainstreamed uh, even more than it, it is now. He, he literally describes it as, as you know, this summit for the future being to long-termism as the 1970 Earth Day was to the modern environmentalist movement. I mean, Earth Day 1970, that was really the time that environmentalism became, you know, this sort of widely recognized at the very least, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of ethical position. So yeah, it's it's extraordinary. And for those of us who are concerned about the, uh, you know, possi possibly dangerous implications of long-termism, it's, it's worrisome that there is so much money behind it and consequently such extraordinary momentum uh, towards, uh, you know, uh, you know, popularizing this view, evangelizing for this view, uh, and so on. It's, you're right, it's, it's unbelievable. $46.1 billion, you know, philosophy departments around the world struggle to pull in a few hundred thousand dollars for f research funding. <laughs> and, and you have, you have, you know, the founder of FTX, one of the biggest, you know, cryptocurrency online currency trading platforms you know giving pledging like billions of dollars um to the long-termist movement and even saying you know uh, um i don't know if this is just hearsay but i also recall hearing that there was some talk of um funding a long-termist presidential candidate for the for the next election in the states um which yeah you know uh <laughs> it's this is really this is really interesting it's really interesting stuff not that it yeah oh sorry oh not that this hasn't you know not that philosophers haven't entered politics before i'm not sure if you knew this but peter singer actually ran um for local politics in melbourne um green party i believe yeah for the greens yeah 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 <laughs> yeah that's really fascinating yeah i hadn't heard that about the long-term candidate but i'm not super surprised i mean the guy who runs uh the ftx um you know company sam bankman freed has has explicitly said that he is considering donating upwards of or maybe more than a billion dollars in the 2024 <laughs> u.s presidential election a billion and just recently, you know, he gave, um, I think it was 11 million to Carrick Flynn, who was an individual who used to work for the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, founded by Nick Bostrom, and where a lot of the, these long-termists are, uh, or have been, like Toby Ord and Will McCaskill. Um, and so, yeah, Carrick Flynn got 11 million from Sam Bankman fried to, to run for Congress in Oregon. And uh, he, he unfortunately didn't have much to show for that uh, at the end. I think he, he lost the primary by quite a bit, quite a, a large margin. But wow. anyways, yeah, so there, there is also this push to encroach more and more into the political arena. They have the power, they have the money, and they have the desire to, I think they, a lot of them believe that they, they this is really important, you know, ensuring the, uh, that humanity exists for an extremely long time, that eventually we colonize space, that we bring into existence, you know, the estimates range from, you know, 10 to the 45 within the Milky Way galaxy alone, digital people, or 10 to the 58 within our, our entire future light cone, the, the region of the universe that's accessible, theoretically accessible to us. Um, and so just this enormous, you know, this 
enormous number of people, the stakes could not be bigger. So they really believe that this is this is just crucially important. It'd be a, a ter- tremendous moral tragedy if only a fraction of those possible people were ever to become actual. And so, yeah, they, they're doing whatever they can to to find ways of influencing uh, politics, of you know, uh, changing the minds of billionaires who whose uh, actions and choices will unilaterally affect uh, the, what the world looks like for all of us. Um, and yeah, so it's it's a uh, um, it's an unprecedented situation. Absolutely, it is. And you are, as far as I'm aware, one of long termists, uh, one of long termism's most prominent critics. Um, <laughs> hey, don't don't sell yourself short, Emil. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, what, what do you see as, okay, let's begin here. Um, what do you see as being the primary cause for concern about the future, whether that be existential risk, um, or something different? Um, and how does this, how does this differ from, I guess the long-termist concern about the future, or are, are you even concerned about the future at all? Yeah, great questions. Um, first of all, I should just clarify. I mean, I just said there, there are very few uh, critics, but actually, there are there are many. I get messages somewhat frequently, weekly, let's say, from individuals, some of whom are at are at the highest highest echelons of some of these EA long-termist adjacent or aligned organizations saying that they they share my concerns but there's just pervasive self-censorship because there is so much money in the organization mm. nobody wants to speak up uh because they don't want to, to end up like me i mean I, I was told back in 2019 uh that if i kept uh, actually it was specifically about some of my my articles criticizing sam harris and you know on social justice issues that they people high up in the community didn't like that. And if I kept going, I would uh, I would never get an EA grant and never work with you know some of these individuals. And so that wow. that was sort of a moment that I decided, well, I should just be more candid publicly about my criticisms, about the criticisms that that um, are shared uh, uh, by so many people behind the scenes. So anyways, not not to be long-winded about that, but there are lots and lots of people, who also are very worried about long-termism, but you know the job market's terrible, and <laughs> you got to put food on the table, so they don't want to speak up, and and uh, it's very un- unfortunate. So I end up just sort of being this this somewhat lone voice voice in uh, in the wilderness. Although there are more and more people, I think, who are uh, coming uh, forth. I know p- people who are working on on uh, some articles and criticism of their own, but yeah. So I mean, the, the main problems with it. I mean, if you even just look at the weak version uh, that's presented and defended in McCaskill's most recent book, What We Owe the Future, you know, he some of his, his um, for, he argues, for example, based on long-termist considerations that you should, uh, me, you meaning, I mean, just as a matter of fact, his main audience is in the global north. It's like white, <laughs> dominated by white people, you know, and he's saying, you know, you should go out and have kids. 
So not only, you know, if you raise them right, he says, whatever that means exactly, not only will they have uh, a good life, and so it'll, that'll be a benefit to them, but also it'll just make the world better. The more people there are who don't have miserable life, lives uh, that, and to exist in the universe, the better the universe becomes. Uh, that, that's based on a, uh, a, a particularly philosophical view called the, the total view. You know, which says, you know, one world is better than another world when and only when it contains more total value. And so, yeah, so, you know, imagine you have 100 people who have, uh, uh, you know, well-being levels of 10. That's in world A. In world B, you've got 10 people with well-being level of, of 10. The first world's going to be better than, than the second. So there's some, and, and that may sound right. Uh, there are plenty of uncontroversial instances where the total view gets the right answer. The problem is that it has some very troubling consequences to it, uh, which we could talk about in a, in a second. So even the weak version, you've got people like McCaskill saying, uh, go out, have more kids. Problem is that that's exactly the opposite of what like most climate scientists are saying. You know, more people in the global north in these countries where you know, that are, that emits, you know, high quantities of, of carbon dioxide, have large carbon footprints. That's a very bad situation uh, for the world in general, especially people in the global south who are going to suffer disproportionately. Uh, another claim McCaskill makes is that uh, one of the reasons we should not burn uh, all the fossil fuels now is to save some so we have we, we can burn them later on if we have to rebuild industrial civilization. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, it's a, if industrial civilization collapses, it's really important to recreate it because industrial civilization is a stepping stone to everything else that ultimately matters, such as colonizing space, which then enables us to, you know, create much larger populations and uh, uh, ultimately stimulate, you know, trillions and trillions of people in, in vast virtual reality worlds. So, I mean, that, that's a very troubling view that sort of uh, doesn't take seriously the harms that we have caused to the biosphere. I mean, essentially saying we should just retrace our steps, pollute our planet all over again, because there's some you know, greater good that, that justifies uh, the, these actions. So I don't know, those are just sort of some strange, uh, um, unpalatable sort of consequences of the view that are explicitly defended um, on the, the weaker version. But you know, stronger versions, when you say like the key priority is ensuring that these trillions of trillions of people come into existence, uh, results in, uh, I mean, it sort of naturally encourages an attitude of insouciance or blitheness about current day problems. Because when you compare current day problems to the amount of value that could come to exist in the future, current day problems just, just uh, disappear almost entirely. So, you know, right now there's, you know, 1.3 billion people in multidimensional poverty. Uh, should you focus on uh, using your, should you use your uh, finite resources to help these individuals who are struggling and suffering right now? Or should you take those finite resources and maybe increase the probability by some very small amount that a huge number of people come to exist in the future. 
if you crunch the numbers, the answer is that you should do the second, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, and so, you know, this has led uh, individuals like Bostrom, who's really the the father of long termism, because he wrote, you know, some of the foundational documents uh, of the long termist uh, worldview. So he's said things like, um, you know, referring to World War II, which of course includes the Holocaust, uh, as well as the AIDS pandemic, uh, the Chernobyl disaster, you know, the, the 1918 Spanish flu, you know, which killed many, many millions more people than World War I did. Um, and when you look at those from the, the grand cosmic point of view, they are uh, more or less quoting him, you know, mere ripples on the great sea of life. Because, because, excuse me, because in the grand scheme of things, they just won't, will not have significantly altered the total amount of value that uh, could exist in the universe. Uh, he even presents, you know, um, a chart showing population increase throughout the 20th century. It says, you know, can you even notice like where the 1918 Spanish uh, flu occurred where World War II occurred and so on. And, and you see kind of like little dips, but you know, they're not that significant. So you, in the grand scheme of things, these are mere ripples. Uh, elsewhere, he says, you know, these are, um, they, they may be giant massacres for man, but there's they're nothing more than small missteps for mankind. And so there's a kind of minimization of some of the worst atrocities in human history um, because of this, this grand cosmic gestalt uh, sort of founded on the total view. Uh, and the implication is clear that, you know, future uh, genocides, future catastrophes like world war, world wars or, you know, pandemics that kill millions of people but don't threaten you, humanity with extinction, um, that one should take a similarly sort of blithe attitude uh, towards, towards those. And... <laughs> Um, he even, you know, says that uh, in, in some, some papers that, you know, for standard, standard utilitarians, the top four priorities should be mitigating existential risk. And the fifth one should be to colonize space as soon as possible. And an existential risk for him is basically any event that would prevent us from creating all of these people in the future, as well as, you know, becoming post-human and all, all sorts of other things that would just sort of maximize uh, the amount of value or well-being in the universe. He, he writes explicitly that because we should be focusing on existential risk as our top four priorities and space colonization as our fifth, we should not, quote, fritter away our finite resources on non-existential threats. Uh, this would include, as Peter Singer himself has noted in his book on effective altruism uh, in 2015, that this includes things like alleviating global poverty or, you know, eliminating factory farming or, you know, any other, um, solving any other problem that is non-existential in nature. Those should be deprioritized. So on this strong long-termist view, you end up just sort of ignoring all of the bad stuff that's going on in the world today, all the suffering uh, um, that is occurring among real, actual, living, breathing human beings. Uh, because there is this greater goal, which is ensuring the realization of these, these future people. So maybe it's worth adding, I mean, on the total view, there is no intrinsic difference between, and, and I would want to emphasize intrinsic, there's no intrinsic difference between the death of an individual who already exists 
and the non-birth of somebody who could exist. Assuming that these individuals would have the same amount of well-being. So imagine, you know, there's, you know, Joe has has a well-being level of of 10, whatever that means exactly. That's another problem. It's like this this sort of weird notion that well-being could be quantified, that there are units of well-being. Sometimes they call them utils, uh, short, you know, um, uh, riffing off of uh, utility. But anyway, so imagine you've got, you know, Joe has a well-being level of 10, and there's this other nearly possible person, Susie, who, if she existed, would have a well-being level of 10. Um, and so in the one case with Joe's death, you know, you're removing from the universe 10 units. Uh, that's bad by 10 units. In another case, if, if Susie, was it Susie or Sally? I can't remember. Susie is never born, then you're depriving the universe of 10 units of well-being that it would otherwise have. And so you know, ultimately, this comes down to a particular notion of people. People are the containers of value. We're just fungible containers. Our value, we do not matter in and of ourselves. We matter derivatively. We matter as means to an end. We matter insofar as we introduce into the universe value, such as happiness or, you know, satisfied desire, something along those lines. And so that is how you get this idea that removing one person, all other things being equal, is intrinsically the same as never bringing someone into existence. So now that you have that in mind, you could think about the, you can understand how they understand, how they think about 10 to the 58 people never coming into existence in the future. That is intrinsically the same as like killing 10 to the 58 people, <laughs> you know, assuming all these people would have net positive amounts of life. So it's just a great, great moral tragedy uh, if we don't, you know, end up colonizing space, creating these uh, vast computer simulations, and so on, and if if ensuring that that happens means ignoring problems in the present, like global poverty, then so be it. <laughs> your your moral obligation is to maximize value of the universe. Therefore, you are actually doing something morally wrong if you take your out your finite resources and you spend it on helping people in global poverty rather than trying to reduce existential risk. And so that's that's sort of why, I mean, that, that's one of many reasons that I find this view you know, really problematic and potentially dangerous if it's taken seriously by uh, the people in, uh, in charge. And maybe one other, like a more concrete example comes from uh, a 2016 book that was published by Oli Hagstrom, a Swedish uh, statistician whose work more recently has focused on existential risk-related uh, issues. And although he himself is generally uh, and somewhat per- perplexingly uh, sympathetic with long-termism, he does note at one point in his book that if people take Bostrom seriously, then you can imagine the following scenario. In Germany, which is, which is the country in which I live right now, um, let's say th- the president of the US gets a word that there's some lone individual who has a one in a million chance of developing a doomsday device and then unilaterally pushing the doomsday button and destroying the world, thereby precluding the realization of all of this future value. So Hagstrom notes that you know if the US president is uh, competent when it comes to arithmetic and crunches the numbers, it may very well be fully justified on the, the Bostrom long-termist view to completely nuke Germany. Just to, they don't know where this individual is. That's fine, let's just nuke the whole thing. 
to eliminate this very small probability that this individual could prevent future people from coming into existence. And so you crunch the numbers, you nuke Germany. And so then that's a real world case where if, if somebody took strong long-termism seriously, then there could be consequences that are really dramatic and devastating. And it doesn't have to be nuclear weapon. It could just weapons. It could just be people in charge ignoring, for example, the global poor or ignoring issues like climate justice. Because again, you know, that may be justified on the long-termist view for the greater cosmic good. Yeah. And this is, you know, these concerns that that you're raising are concerns that I share and they make me really worried, especially, you know, that example you just gave of the the German individual who has a one in a million chance of, you know, ending ending our species. Um, yeah, this kind of stuff, I like, and I actually wanted to speak to you about this. I really struggle to just generally in philosophy, um, I, I've like always found, you know, counter arguments to be, to be really confusing. Um, so let's take an example. So before you were speaking about, uh, a, you mentioned a criticism of totalism, which I, I also think is an extremely powerful criticism. And I think what you were alluding to is called the atrocious, atrocious conclusion. Is that right? This idea that, that, okay, okay. Um, I, I, I think it's something I read a few days ago, but it's this idea that, um, you know, you have these two worlds. You have one world where you have a hundred individuals. So world A has a hundred individuals who experience, or who have ten units of well-being, um, and then in world B you have a trillion individuals who have 0.01 you know units of well-being and under the totalist view world b would be a better place or world b should be the world that we pre- uh, preference or that we should say is a better world and you know this is just like so incredibly counterintuitive um, and so incredibly, such a strange conclusion um, for any, you know, philosophy to 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 reach um, that I don't really know what to do with it. And um, this actually may be of interest to you because I think it's called the atrocious conclusion. Um, repugnant, that's it. Repugnant conclusion. Sorry, not the atrocious conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, but <laughs> the repugnant conclusion, that's it. So the, the and you know, recently um, there was a, some kind of document that was signed by a bunch of people who are sympathetic to totalism, who agreed that the repugnant conclusion shouldn't be a reason why you reject totalism. Now, when I heard this, I was like, this, you know, th- that that was a moment for me where I was like, there is some really dodgy stuff going on. Because if 
if your if your solution to addressing a counter argument to your your view is that the counter argument stands even though this conclusion is true then like part of me feels like especially in analytic analytical philosophy this heavy prioritization of logic that falls to pieces as soon as you're able to say our view works but not here and not here and not here and we're just going to sign a document and say you know we agree that it doesn't work here and here and here but this doesn't mean that our view should be total should be rejected um yeah and i find this i find this totally mind-boggling um i don't really know what to make of of this kind of this move um and i was wondering if you had yeah i guess like this is more maybe of like a a meta-ethical question but like does so with long-termism you know this if you if if it's true that you know someone like will mccaskill or another long-termist is you know someone is also a totalist if you're able to provide a strong counter argument to totalism um like is there something that this should mean for long-termism like should there be a particular outcome or is it fine to just say oh like we agree that this is a real problem we're just going to sign a document saying that it's a real problem but that it doesn't actually undermine our worldview like what what's going on here okay so yes that is a very strange document indeed i mean i i can't think of any similar document in the past where you had a minority of philosophers basically claiming that yes it it is it is widely thought that the repugnant conclusion is sort of a knockdown argument against certain views the total view being the most obvious but they believe that that is misguided and and from here on out we should not as a as a community of researchers we should all not see the repugnant conclusion as sufficient reason to abandon a view that implies it and so it it's it's absolutely i found it completely bizarre i didn't that's not the way philosophy normally works <laughs> you know you don't just have a bunch of people sign a document and sort of by fiat you know declare that well this is just a non-issue from here on out um i mean they do provide some reasons but the reasons themselves are very controversial you know it's it's not they haven't provided a a you know um a watertight you know uh, you know a a sort of sufficiently cogent uh argument for why the repugnant conclusion should be sort of brushed under the rug <laughs> and so it's, it's really strange I, mean, I, t- I talked to a number of um philosophers including some who are quite prominent in the field um one of whom i i quote in my forthcoming book uh, although i i do it anonymously with permission from this individual uh but you know he said essentially that him and his uh philosopher friends have been are completely perplexed by this publication and don't understand why the authors 
felt the need to write it. And also that there was a kind of a sense of, of desperation to their plea that we should stop talking about the repugnant conclusion so much. <laughs> so it, yeah, it is really, it is really weird. And I mean, the repugnant conclusion is, you know, it was given that name by uh, Derek Parfit back in 1984. Um, and, you know, for a good reason. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, like one of their claims is, well, we're, our mind just isn't, our minds just aren't um, really good with big numbers. And so when you're talking about, you know, thousands or trillions of people, oh my God. then, you know, we're, we're just, that, that's just beyond our epistemic grasp. Surely uh, to, they to, didn't to really say that. Surely yes. they didn't. <laughs> yes. So that that was one of the the claims. Um, you know, but that itself, like, I don't know, some people would, would uh, could push back on that in reasonable ways. Also, it doesn't necessarily uh, require big populations. I mean, you could have a population of, you know, 100 people who have well-being of one, uh, or let's say 100 people have a well-being of 10, you know, versus a population of, you know, a uh, uh, thousand people who have uh, well-being of, of one, you know, you know, well, I can't, it's too late to exactly do the math, but you could imagine just these smaller populations were still, even though the average well-being in one world is much lower than in the other, because of a larger population, there's still more total value in that world. And so the, this world with lots of people with very low average well-being is just a better world than a, a world with fewer people, but much higher uh, average well-being. So yeah, it, it's it's very strange. And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the, this it is the repugnant conclusion is a very good argument against the total view. And the total view is the main view that leads to the conclusion that human extinction would be catastrophically worse than sub-extinction catastrophes. You know, killing 99% of people versus 100% of people, that is a huge difference, not a difference of 1%. Uh, and so as soon as you lose the, the total view, then, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the, the sort of long-termist concerns uh, end up being, you know, uh, deprived of much of their force. So, yeah, I mean, and there are other problems with the total view. I mean, we were talking about one before that, you know, this intrinsic difference between birth and uh, non-birth and death, this view that people are, are mere means, you know, just the containers of value. That seems like it gets things completely reversed. Um, so, yeah, lots of sort of philosophical problems with the the, the whole long-termist edifice. The, the foundations themselves are uh, quite shaky, which is worrisome because you have people like Will McCaskill out there right now who are making very strong, bold claims as if these claims are supported by robust philosophical reasoning when that's just not the case. These are highly controversial ideas that lots, probably most philosophers, professional philosophers uh, don't accept. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. And and going back to, you know, another uh, thing that you mentioned before, I do, you, you don't have to accept the long-termist view to take the future seriously. I mean, you can really care about long-term thinking and value the lives of uh, future individuals and even say, you know, the moral value of people in the future is the same as the moral value uh, of people who exist today. Their suffering doesn't count for less than our suffering just because they exist in the, in the, the far future. But, you know, th there are 
other views that enable you to get that result that don't have all these negative, uh, th these unfortunate, undesirable, unpalatable implications, um, like these the, the views that long-termism is sort of built on. Mm. Okay, well, Emil, thank you. This has been a real masterclass in history, uh, in long-termism, in existential risk, and a really wonderful introduction to you as a person. Um, so it's been a real pleasure getting to getting to know you and uh, and speaking with you over the past ninety minutes. Um, so thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. This is this is really great. This is yeah, a lot of fun. this was a lot of fun. Um, and if people are uh, for the, for the listeners um, who are interested in learning more about your work or following you on social media, where are the what's the best place to find you? Yeah, probably Twitter. Uh, it's at X Riskology. Riskology as if it's a field. <laughs> you know? So X Riskology. Okay, I'll put a link in the bio of the episode.